Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for uh, the book of Hebrews, and it has been fun uh, for me to uh, just kind of do uh, uh, an expository book of the Bible study. And uh, we're kind of rounding the bend on it right now, and I just pray that the next few weeks would uh, be really powerful and would connect us, connect us to you in a real way. We thank you for Jesus and for his sacrifice. It's in his name we pray, amen. Somebody uh, forwarded me a list this week of uh, some rules of, a- of aviation, some rules that you wanna follow. Like one of them is every takeoff is optional, every landing is mandatory. Which, which is true, flying isn't dangerous, crashing is dangerous. Uh, the only time you have too much fuel is when you're on fire. Um, uh, stay out of the clouds, the silver lining everyone talks about might be another airplane coming in your direction. Uh, learn from the mistakes of others, you won't live long enough to make them all yourself. So, uh, the reason that kind of caught my attention is when I was in Bible college, uh, my preaching professor used a- aviation as a, as a way of describing to us what a sermon should look like. And he said, in every sermon, you want to have a takeoff uh, where you start with a good story or an idea or something like that, and you just kind of introduce the topic, and then you reach cruising altitude. And this is where you're exploring the text and making points and, and things like that. And then you want to have a, a nice, soft landing, right, where, where you make the point one more time and then close your Bible and sit down. And, and I'll tell you, um, I've always struggled with the landing. I, I, I have. Uh, my, my professor used to say this all the time, do not land like Steve Higgs lands, right? Because I take off, I take off, I cruise, and, and then I abruptly end or crash land or whatever the case may be. Uh, that's another story for another day. But I, I, I say that because this is how the book of Hebrews is kind of structured, right? There's a takeoff of, of the book, and we explored this in chapter one. I'll put it up on the screen for you. This is the, the takeoff spot of Hebrews one. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, and so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Uh, This is from, from chapter one. It is the writer of Hebrews introducing us to what this book is going to be about, that this book is going to be about the sun about Jesus, that he is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of his being. He is sustaining all things. This is a book about Jesus, that Jesus is greater, that Jesus is better, that Jesus is superior. So that's in chapter one, you get kind of the the takeoff moment. And then after that, you find yourself at cruising altitude, where the writer of Hebrews is making this point again and again, that Jesus is, Jesus is greater. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the high priest. He offers a greater rest, greater promises. His covenant is greater. And, and, and we're at cruising altitude. And now, beginning in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, if you want to open your Bibles in Hebrews 10, fasten your seatbelt, put your seat in the upright position, because we are going to begin our final descent. All right? And we're going to do that over the next couple, couple weeks, that, um, that, that uh, we're, we're going to begin to kind of land the plane uh, from the book of Hebrews. And our text today is going to start with a very important word, and the word is therefore. 
And uh, this is a little bit campy, it's a little bit cheesy, but I was always taught whenever you see the word therefore, you need to figure out what it's there for, right? Because it's, it's important, it means uh, something. And so the writer of Hebrews is gonna remind us if everything we've studied so far is true, if Jesus is greater, if Jesus is better, if, if, if all of that is true, then some other things are true as well. And he's gonna to begin to give us a series of statements that are based on the word therefore. So let's start in Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up uh, for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a, a, a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who is, has promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. So here's what he says. If everything the writer of Hebrews has said so far is true, then here's his, his first point. Therefore, let us draw near to God. Therefore, let us draw near to God. And I want to illustrate this using a made-up scenario. I want you to imagine for a moment that you have family in from overseas, and they're from a long way off. Let's just say Australia for the purpose of this illustration. And they come, and they're going to visit you, and they're, and they're going to see you, or so you, or so you thought. But, and, and when they come, they end up making all these other plans with all these other people. They're seeing other people. They're doing other things. And over the course of a 10-day trip, they end up spending about a day with you. And now imagine they fly back to Australia. They go back over, overseas. And they call you in a week and they say, man, I really miss you. I wish we could spend some time together. Your first thought would be, well, we just had that opportunity over the course of like 10 days. So I want you to notice the buildup of this text. He says, since we have confidence because of the blood of Jesus to enter the most holy place, and because we have a great high priest in Jesus who has made sacrifices for our sins and our sins no longer separate us from God, the therefore is we draw near to God. We take advantage of the opportunity that we've been given. That since we have the opportunity to draw near to God, since our sin has been forgiven and taken care of, that's exactly what we do. We draw near to him. I love what the Puritan John Owen said. He said, friendship is most maintained and kept up by visits. And, and, the more, uh, and these, the more free and less occasioned by urgent business. So here's what he's saying. That sometimes we are driven to God by urgent business by crisis, and that's okay. Your heavenly father wants you to be driven to him with urgent business. But what the Puritan John was saying is that we wanna make sure that we have regular visits outside of that, regular visits that are for the purpose of knowing him and worshiping him and getting to know him better. Why? Because we can. Because Jesus has made that possible. And the other reason is because we were created for it. I believe this with all my heart. You were created to know God. You were created to worship him. You were created to follow him. And by the blood of Jesus, by the work of our high priest, it is available to you. So his first point is we draw near to God. And, and notice what he says. He says, we draw to him with sincere hearts. Another way to say this is we draw to him with, with, tr with true hearts, that we are driven to him by a genuine affection and desire to know him better. Now that's not to say there won't be seasons where we are drawing near to him because this is what we do. 
You know, you, you maybe have even said this to your kids before. Why are we going to church today? It's what we do, right? This is what we do. And, and sometimes you have a season where that's true, where you're drawing near to him because, man, this is a discipline. This is what I do in the morning. This is what I do on Sunday. I'm just doing this because this is what I, I do. But we want that to be, the writer of Hebrews says, that should be the exception, not the rule, right? The, the rule is that our hearts have, have a real desire to know our God better and to worship him more, and to know him more fully. And so I, my kind of take on this is I think regular interaction with God, if you can get in the habit of regular interaction with God, kind of is the fuel for this fire. Because to know God some is to want to know him better. I really believe that. And so regular interaction with God, I think, is the key that unlocks this door. Because the more we know him, the better we want to know him. So there's this really great book, and uh, Scott reminded me that we have a test based on this book if you want to know more about this after I explain it. But the, the book is called Sacred Pathways by Gary Thomas. And he says that there are nine different pathways, depending on your personality, on how you connect with God. And everybody's got a different personality. Everybody's kind of got a, a way that, they're, that, that they connect with God. And he says that he, he's identified nine of them uh, that, that we can kind of think through for a minute about how we can better connect with God. The first one is the naturalist. And this is connecting with God by being outdoors. It is sunrises, it is sunsets. It's the outdoorsy person that says, that's how I connect with God. Uh, the next one is based on our senses, that this is the person who connects with God using one of their senses through singing and song or taste. Communion might be really important to them. Uh, another is the traditionalists. They love God through uh, traditions and, and, and symbols and ritual that there's a certain personality type that they might have the same pattern to their spiritual life uh, um, every single day. That they, I get up, I brew my coffee, I grab my Bible, I go to the same spot, this is what I do. And I wanna recognize if, if, that, if you're in that category, I'm guessing the last couple months at Northwest have been hard on you. Because you're like, I come to church, I have my row, I have my pew, those are gone, right? How do you expect me to connect to God, right? So, so and that, that's a personality type, and it's okay. It, 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 really, it, it really is. Um, uh, the other is loving God in solitude. Uh, some of you just want to be left alone when you're connecting with God. Uh, it, it's a, a part of your personality. Another is activists, connecting with God through confrontation. That there's a type of person that really feels they're connecting to God when they're, when they're going after a cause, Another is caregiver, connecting to God by caring for his people. Another is in, in the enthusiast, that some of you are just so enthusiastic with your faith based on your, your personality. You love mystery, you love celebration, and you don't know what God is doing, but you know he's up to something, and you're just excited to be part of the ride. And so being enthusiastic is a part of it. Another is contemplative, uh, uh, worshiping God through adoration, that this person has a high sense of their personal relationship with God. And so they often do things that are private, just between them and God. No one ever knows that they happen, but that personal relationship with God is important to them. Another is uh, intellectual. Uh, the last one's intellectual, loving God with my mind. I love to read and study and gather information. So there's a lot of different personality types there. And a lot, I want you to know there's a lot of different ways to connect with God. There's not like one way that you have to do. There's a lot of different ways, but I would encourage you, you're probably drawn to one or two of these, but I'd encourage you to try them all, right? And, and interact with God on, on, on different levels because you can. The curtain's been torn down. You have access to your God uh, every, every single day. And so we do it because we can and because we were created for it. So that's the first thing he says is, therefore, if everything he said is true, Jesus the high priest, Jesus the blood, Jesus the covenant, if all that stuff is true, therefore, draw near to God. The next thing he says is, therefore, let us hold to the hope that we have. 
Let us hold to the hope that we have. And he actually gives a reason on why you should never lose your hope. And the reason that he gives is because the one who made promises to you is faithful. This is a huge part of the book of Hebrews. It is highlighting the faithfulness of Jesus, that Jesus is faithful. Jesus as a high priest is faithful. Jesus as a promise maker is faithful. Jesus as a savior is faithful. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, have your hope in him because you can trust him. He's faithful. And here's that why this is so important. When it comes to our hope, all right, and this is just human nature, I'm this way too. When it comes to our hope, most of the time our hope is centered on a what. Specifically, I have a hope for what's going to happen. So my hope might be that my body's going to be healed. I'm sick and I want my body to be healed. That's a what. That, that my marriage is going to be restored. My finances will improve. And, and remember, the writer of Hebrews is writing to people who are undergoing persecution. So their hope might be resting on the idea that this persecution and this hardship is going to, to stop soon. So most of the time, our hope is built on a what. I want this thing to happen. But the writer of Hebrews says, if you really want hope, that's never going to go away, that's, that's never going to be taken from you, don't have your hope on a what. Have your hope on a who. That our hope, the writer of Hebrews says, is in Jesus. Because you don't know what Jesus is going to do in your situation, but you know it's going to be right, and it's going to be good, and it's going to be holy, because you've learned you can trust him with, with, with your hope, and that he knows what is best. You know what the Bible says about this? Cast all your cares on him. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, man, have your hope, not in a what, but in a who. Have your hope in Jesus. And, and that's, if everything we've said about Jesus, that he's a faithful high priest, he's a faithful promise giver, he's, he's faithful in, in bringing his new covenant, if all that's true, then of course our hope should be in him. Therefore, it goes on to say, let us encourage one another. He goes on in verse 24 to say, we're not going to meet up meeting, we're not going to give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but instead we're going to encourage one another on and we're going to spur one another on to love and good deeds. Think about this in relation to the rest of the text, that there's been this consistent message in this text that Jesus is greater, Jesus is better, all this stuff. And so he says, if that's true, if you believe Jesus is greater, then the natural therefore of that is meet together, encourage one another on to love him more and obey him more fully. Now, here's the deal with this. We live in a very, very, uh, uh, we, we live in a, a culture that is not terribly encouraging. All right? You think about what we do in our culture, that we develop heroes one year, and then two years down the road, we tear those heroes apart. Right? We, we, our culture just likes to do it. Think about social media just for a moment, that many of the posts on social media are often uh, criticizing and condemning others as the body of Christ, based on what we've learned in Hebrews, we're called to be different. We're called to encourage one another, to be encouraging to one another, to follow Jesus and love him more and obey him more, uh, more deeply because he's better. Right? Now, this is the part of the text um, I really didn't want to get into this, to be honest with you, but this, this is a hard text. Scott thought I gave him the hardest text. I disagree, all right? Uh, th this is one of the hardest texts in Hebrews, but he says, therefore, let us turn to Jesus. This is the best way I could describe this text, but let me introduce um, the, the, this section this way and kind of how the writer of Hebrews, how Hebrews is structured. If you have kids or grandkids, you know that you will often be in the middle of a conversation or an activity with somebody else and then have to give them a warning. Right, So you're playing checkers or something with one kid or grandkid, and in the middle of the game, you're like, don't stick that straw in your nose. 
right, to the other one. Or um, you're in the middle of an ice cream shop and your kids are playing out on the play equipment and you got like half a scoop of ice cream and you're like, don't hit that kid. You know, in the middle of an activity. Some of you know that if you're out here in the hallway, like talking to me, you, you could be pouring your heart out to me, asking me to pray for you. And I'd be like, Sam, stop running. Right? And I'd be like, I'm sorry, can I pray for you now? Right? Right? You know, it's just a season of life that, that we're in. That often in the, middle of, uh, in the middle of a conversation, you have to offer a, 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 a warning. And the writer Hebrews, this is how Hebrews is structured. Right? You're reading, you're reading, you're reading, then there's a warning. You're reading, you're reading. There's multiple uh, warnings throughout the book, and, and here's, here's one of them. And it's based on what he's been talking about, so it's not completely random or anything, but it starts in verse 26. It's kind of scary. But he says, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth. So you've got all this stuff about Jesus and you deliberately kind of keep going on. No sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Welcome to Northwest. That's going to be our verse for the wall for now, I know. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot and who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them and who insulted the spirit of grace? For we know uh, him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. All right? Tough text, right? Can we, can we, right? Tough, tough, tough text. And when you think, and when you read it, you know, talking about punishment and judgment and the enemies of God and, and raging of, uh, fire and all that stuff, and, and that is designed for anyone who deliberately keeps on sinning, it would be easy to read that text and say, uh oh, I'm a sinner. Is this text talking? about me. And I want to tell you, first of all, what this text is not talking about. This text is not talking about a Christian who sins, right? All, listen to me, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The point of the book of Hebrews is that we are sinners in need of a high priest, so, so we need a high priest who will pay for and forgive our sins. So intrinsic, written into the gospel, is the idea that we are sinners and we turn to Jesus who offers us grace upon grace upon grace. This is the gospel. This is how Jesus is a better high priest because he offers forgiveness for sins once for all. This is the better blood of Jesus. This is the better promises of Jesus. It is found in the gospel of grace. So this passage is not, if you're reading this going, I sin. And sometimes I deliberately sin, right? And I, we, we don't want to admit that, but you know, some, sometimes I, I sin on purpose. This is talking about me. Now, we can tell who this passage is being talked about. This passage is talking about someone who has stopped turning to Jesus for their salvation. You can tell this by the illustration he uses. The illustration he uses is those who rejected the law of Moses, those that didn't want the law or said they didn't need the law. And he says they were left with the judgment of God. And so it's the illustration he uses is people who have rejected God's law. And then he makes that correlation to Christians living today. So I want to be clear on this. This passage is talking about someone who has turned their back on and rejects Jesus. Now, when you understand it this way, that this is talking about someone who says, I, I, I'm done with his grace, I'm done with his lordship, I, I'm done with him. This makes some of the language a little more understandable. They have trampled the son of God. 
They have treated his blood as an unholy or unneeded thing, and they have insulted the gospel of grace. Now, I think based on all that, these are people who used to be followers of Jesus, because uh, we know the book is written to uh, people who had converted from Judaism to Christianity, and they were being persecuted and losing business and losing family members and all that stuff. And we know some of them were leaving Christianity and going back to Judaism. And so I think that this text is clearly written to people in that position. They have at one point relied on Jesus as their Lord and as their Savior, and for whatever reason, they've given up. They've given up on the whole Jesus thing. And they say, I'm done with that. I'm turning my back on that. I'm, I'm going to go back to my old religion or to a different religion or whatever the case may be. It is a rejection of the gospel. So here's kind of the, let me kind of go a little bit deeper on this. God is ultimately the judge of all things and all people. There is this foolishness sometimes uh, when we read the Bible that, that kind of gets peddled that like God in the Old Testament was this righteous judge um, and in the New Testament, like he went on decaf and calmed down, all right? And, and, and in the New Testament, God's not a judge. That is not true. God is a righteous judge in the Old Testament, and he is a righteous judge in the New Testament. The point of the gospel is that in the New Testament, he's given us Jesus, so that Jesus can be our mediator, Jesus can be our forgiver, Jesus can be our grace giver. We sing this song, and I love it, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. So it's not that God changes from the Old to the New Testament, it's that in the New Testament we get Jesus. Um, and, and Jesus then reaches back and saves those through faith who have trusted in the law or, or trusted in God's promises. Jesus saves even them. But this is the gospel that we have Jesus. So Jesus pays it all, but the caveat to that is if we reject his son, if we reject, reject his gift of grace, Jesus pays it all, God will allow us to pay our own. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. God will allow us to pay the wages of sin, which is death in this life and in the next. So the writer of Hebrews is encouraging these uh, Jewish men and women who are undergoing great persecution, don't give up. Keep Jesus your Lord. Keep Jesus your Savior. And you will find life in this life and in, in the next. Um, and, and he's again, this warning is based on everything that's been in the book that Jesus is better, Jesus is greater. Don't turn your back on him. It's a warning about the judgment that awaits, that Jesus will take your place. He will, he will, he will. He, he promises that and he keeps his promises. But if, if you turn your back on him, he'll allow you to pay the price. Let's continue on in verse 32, all right? Remember those earlier days after you received the light when you endured uh, in a great con... Uh, uh, excuse me, yeah, yeah, verse, verse 32, excuse me. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you endured uh, in such great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. Other times you stood side by side with those uh, you were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully uh, accepted the confiscation of your property because you know that you yourselves had a better and lasting possession. So do not throw away your confidence it will be richly rewarded. So he's doubling down on this idea. Because of who Jesus is and because of what he's done, persevere. Persevere. And some of you, this is, I'm gonna gently bring the plane down on this landing strip because I think some of you need to hear this. It's been a tough year. 
It's been a tough go. And the writer of Hebrews wants to encourage you to persevere. Remember who he's writing to. These are people that are undergoing persecution, undergoing hardship. And his message to them is clear. Don't give up. Your perseverance will be rewarded. You have a better and lasting possession and inheritance in Jesus Christ. And for the next several verses in chapter 11, he shares story after story after story of people from the Old Testament that have done exactly that. People that have had a rough year or a rough go and and people that had to step out in faith and they persevered. And I would encourage you to read that chapter this week, uh, chapter 11. It's sometimes called uh, the faith chapter of the Bible, but I want to show you one excerpt of it because I think this is so powerful. And let me show you this in 1132. He's going through all these stories of people that have persevered and all these people that have refused to give up. Then he says this, and what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign foreign armies. Women received back their dead and raised to life again. That's one group. Then there were those who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, Yet none of them received what had promised, since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. So he's saying this. Some had to figure out how to keep their confidence in God in times of victory, right? So they're winning battles. They're seeing resurrection. Things are good. And if you don't think you have to struggle through faith when things are good, you got another thing coming to you, all right? Because when things are good, it is easy to think, I did this. I accomplished this. This was on me. So maintaining your sense of God and maintaining your sense of faith when everything is good is a challenge. And he said multiple people in the Old Testament had that exactly thing. They're defeating armies. They're routing armies. They're having victory. Things are good. They're expanding their kingdom. And they had to maintain a sense of faith in, in good times. And then he said some had to do that in hard times. They were tortured, they were flogged, they were sawed in two, and they had to maintain a sense of faith when everything was falling apart and and they felt like they had been forgotten and they didn't know where God was leading them and they didn't know if God was gonna keep his promises to them. They had to learn in the Old Testament to maintain a sense of faith in hard times. And he says, you know what those two groups have in common in the Old Testament? Those that had to maintain faith, maintain faith in good times and those that had to maintain faith in bad times, what those two groups in common uh, have in common is this. None of them have what you have. Neither people in, in those groups have what you have, which is the gospel, which is our Savior Jesus going to a cross to pay for our sins, defeating death through his resurrection and giving us his Holy Spirit. The writer of Hebrews says, God had something better planned for you and for me. Think about that just for a moment. God had something better planned for you 
then Moses, then Abraham, then David. God had something better planned, and that something was Jesus. And so this gospel of Jesus that, that we have been given, it plays an intricate role when we remember it. It plays an intricate role in us refusing to give up and staying faithful. Let me, let me be even more clear. Don't ever think that God has forgotten you. It's easy to do. Sometimes it's easy, man, has God, have you forgotten about me? I'm still down here, you know. I, I've still got stuff going on. God, have you forgotten me? No, no, no. The gospel says that he gave his one and only son so that we could remember that he loves us deeply. So if you're here today and you feel like maybe God has forgotten you, the gospel says that he hasn't. The gospel says he gave his one and only son for you. Don't, don't leave here today thinking that God isn't gonna keep his promises to you. The gospel reminds us that God always keeps his promises. In his timing and in his way, he always does. So if you're here today going, is God ever gonna do this? If it's a promise, he's going to do it, I promise. He, he always keeps his promises. So don't leave here thinking God's not gonna keep his promises to you. And whatever you do, do not leave this room thinking that you don't have what it takes to run the race marked out for you, as Hebrews is gonna go on to say. The good news, the gospel teaches us that when Jesus died and was resurrected, that God gave us his Holy Spirit. And the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead is alive and at work in you. So do not leave this room thinking you don't have what it takes. In Christ, you are stronger than you realize. In Christ, you have what it takes. In Christ, you have the spirit that rose Jesus from the dead. You are stronger, more resilient, more powerful than you ever realized in Christ. So don't leave here thinking, I don't have what it takes. I can't run this race that he has marked out for me. You can because of the gospel. And so the gospel, this gift that we've given us, that Abraham accepted in faith, that Moses accepted in faith, they didn't know what God was doing, but they just know that he said, you know, leave your country and your family and your, your household and go, or go release my people from slavery. They didn't know what God was doing. We can look back and see what God was doing. We have this gift called the gospel. And it reminds us that our Savior, our God loves us, it reminds us that he keeps his promises to us. And it reminds us that we have more power in Christ than we could ever imagine. And that, my friends, is why it's called good news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this text. And it is just getting started. We're going to continue on into it next week about um, how... This writer of Hebrews is going to remind us to develop and build our faith in light of the gospel. Uh, and I pray that those of us here, some of us here are trying to figure out how to maintain our faith in good times, but I know a lot of people in this room are trying to figure out how to maintain faith in, in the midst of hard times. Um, it's been a tough year for a lot of people in this room. Would we, could you help us to internalize your good news right now and remind us that you love us, you sent your son for us. Remind us that you keep your promises to us, you always do. And remind us that we have your spirit, the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us. So we have more power than we could ever realize to make it through the road and the race you have marked out for us. Help us to be encouraged by that. May we never 
turn our back on your son, Jesus, and go another direction. Help us to lean into him and, and to worship him more and to know him more. I pray that every person in this room would leave encouraged. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're gonna sing a song of invitation. Uh, if you would stand. And uh, um, I'd love to pray with you. Um, I'd love to talk to you a little bit more about Jesus if you're interested in hearing more about him uh, as we sing this song together. We're gonna sing two songs actually.